like to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 7, please, today. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 36. I encourage you to read along, hear God's word. <clears throat> Continuing through the Gospel of John and through chapter 7 and 8, as we've kind of combined them together and under this heading of water and light and as we look at the passage we're going to look at today, we're not going to quite get to that matter of water just yet. But I do want you to keep that in mind as uh, we move closer. And of course, Lord willing, next week we'll see in verse 37 when Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's what we're aiming for in the week ahead. And it's something that we're coming to as we consider from last week, discovering true teaching. Now we're kind of moving to something that course might sound very similar to what we were thinking of last week but seeking the true teacher all right so that's what we're kind of shooting for this morning we're in John chapter 7 um, if you don't have a Bible with you uh, feel free to grab one from the pew ahead of you or um, look around there should be one available nearby this is the most important thing we're going to do today so would you please follow along as I read starting at verse 25 and then I'll um, offer some space for silent meditation before we pray and then consider the word John 7, 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me. And you know where I am come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And in him, in him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. The chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Would you bow your heads? We'll take a few moments of silent meditation for you to consider this word, to do business with the Lord if you need to continue to prepare your hearts for considering the word this morning.
Father, we sang earlier that when you speak and we listen to your voice, new life the dead receive. Lord, we believe this morning that your word has life-giving power because your word proceeds from you. Because Jesus has taught us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So all that we have is all that we have in Christ. All that we can hold on to, all that we can cling to. And today, Lord, it is all that we have to seek for. Would you help us, Lord, in our seeking the true teacher this morning? To not miss what the teacher is saying. And would you indeed draw us closer to your presence? as you are so readily available to us this morning. Would you speak to our hearts? Would you do business in the places where we need to deal with things? Would you build up and encourage us in our humility before you that we seek Christ and no other? We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody remember what festival is going on in John chapter 7? What's that thing called? Feast of Booths. Remember a little bit of that from last week and why God instituted in his law that we should remember the Feast of the Booths? What time does it throw Israel back to in their history? It's the time after the Exodus, and they were wandering in the wilderness, living in booths or living in tents. We talked a little bit last week about how this Feast of Booths has an anticipation of joy and celebration and thanksgiving. Because compared to a time in their history where they had no true home, it felt like, they were on their way to the promised land, they were meant to celebrate the Feast of Booths as a celebration of being brought to it. To have moved away from that time of seeking the promised land and to have been found in it. And so the Feast of Booths was a time where every Israelite family was to build tents and live out under the stars and be reminded of the wandering of their fathers before them and to be thankful for the harvest of land that they've found, the, the goodness of the land that God had brought them to. Now, during the Festival of Booths, the Feast of Booths, rather, it wouldn't be unusual for many rabbis who might have been traveling around, itinerant preachers, um, with their disciples to come to the Feast of Booths and to prepare some kind of message to give while they're in Jerusalem. And, and so there, it wouldn't be odd to see a rabbi speaking with his disciples and crowds starting to gather around him. Can you imagine this Feast of Booths when Christ is teaching, as we've found ourselves here in verse 25, in the middle of this whole festival and his teachings. Can you imagine being one of those other rabbis who maybe you got your best sermon ever for that week and you were so excited, you were so ready to exposit something from the word of God and to encourage your disciples and you get there and nobody wants to hear anything from you at all because there's this other guy, there's this other rabbi who's teaching and his teaching is so unique and so people are seeking him, and they want to know more from him. They, in fact, we read last week that at the beginning of the feast, when he wasn't there, there was a great disappointment. This Feast of Booths that was supposed to be a celebration, uh, both his, 
those who were looking forward to hearing from him and those who were looking to catch him and capture him in his words were both very disappointed that he wasn't there immediately. Well, these rabbis that would have come from different places and um, would have been in competition with Jesus' teaching, the, the true teacher, the teacher of truth, him who himself is the truth, the life, and the way, uh, they would have been coming from various different places and would have been talking about where they came from and, and they would identify themselves in that way. And so when you see this conversation, even last week, of uh, the crowds talking about, hey, how, or rather, these were the religious leaders saying, hey, how does this man have teaching when he never studied? He never went to school anywhere. We don't know what school he came from. Well, at the beginning of our passage today, some of the people in Jerusalem said, isn't this the man they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing about him. Could it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. There's reasoning going on about, okay, we've, we've sought out this guy, and we've met him, and we're hearing him. What are we supposed to do with him? In their minds, they might have thought, okay, well, the seeking's over. We're, we're, we're placed with a person in front of us who very well might be the Messiah, and how are we going to reason out whether his claims are true or not. Well, as you see, the title is Seeking the True Teacher. And it was on purpose that we read Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. Um, 11 especially being a very familiar verse for many of us, perhaps. Um, I was talking yesterday about how it seemed in middle school, middle school through high school, as um, I hung out with my Christian friends. I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I had a lot of Christian friends. And it seemed like, Every couple weeks or months, somebody was coming up and saying, I found my life verse. And I'm like, what in the world is a life verse anyway? But apparently a life verse is something that you kind of hold on to. It's a line of scripture that you say, oh, this is mine. This is what God's speaking to me. And this is that thing I'm going to seek to discover in my life, right? I want, this is my life verse. And of course it was Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you to prosper you, not to harm you. This is a wonderful thing, right? And yet it was written to a people who were in exile, a people who had been kicked out of their own country and who were suffering. And we know that as we come to Scripture, we cannot simply just throw whatever meaning we'd like to on what God has said. We have to actually see who he's speaking to in the first place. And, and how do we take something like Jeremiah 29, 11 and transfer it over to where we are today? Well, Trent, of course, continued on to verse 13 as well there, because seeking God can only truly be done rightly in one way. Because there in verse 13, Jeremiah, delivering the word of God to his people, says, In that day you will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me, how? Did you catch it? With your whole reasoning, with your whole thinking, with your best works, with your, your just the, all that you've got, put it, no, it's when you seek me with your whole heart. What could that possibly mean to seek God with our whole heart? And you might even see as you look further into the passage that we just read, where the conflict's going to come, because Jesus is actually talking to the Jewish leaders, and he says, I'm going to be with you a little while longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me, and you're going to seek me, and you're not going to find me almost seems contrary to what God was trying to set up prophetically about the promised land and, and coming back to it and, and then ultimately the Messiah fulfilling that thing. How is it that Jesus can stand here and say, 
you will seek me and you will not find me. It's difficult. What we need to do with the teacher that we're called to seek this morning is to seek him in three different ways. First of all, we need to seek him rightly. Secondly, we need to seek him humbly. And then lastly, we need to seek him in a timely way. Now, you might say, we could just say seeking rightly covers all of those things. But I needed three things for this week, so this is what you got. Seeking him rightly, humbly, and in a timely way. Now, looking at the passage is very fascinating if you try to break it down and see the movement of this passage. In verses 25 through 27, we see a baffled crowd. And then in verses 28 through 29, we have a conversation of who knows who. Then 30 through 34, we have a divine timetable. And then the last section, 35 and 36, we have baffled teachers. So if you notice, there's the beginning, there's a baffled crowd, and then in the end, there's baffled teachers as well as they're faced with the true teacher. So that's kind of the direction we're going to go. Baffled crowd, who knows who, a divine timetable, and then baffled teachers. With all the sadness of what's been going on this past week on a global scale as we think about Ukraine and think about the evil desire to run people out of their homes. And, and what, a, what an amazing thing in 2022 when something like this happens, it, just how much information and how much footage we have. Uh, it's almost, it's one of those things where you get online and there's a video and it's a, you know, missile uh, hits a home next to this person's home and they're filming it with their cell phone. And, and part of me, I, at least, I don't know if you have this struggle, but part of me immediately wants to click on and say, oh, what kind of terrible situation is going on? And there's another part of me that looks at it and goes, I don't really want to see all this because the way we take in information and so much of it all at once, we don't always decipher it well. And especially if you're scrolling through social media, you could see something like a family running for their lives from a tank coming down the street. And then the next thing you see is a cat video. And and then the next thing you see is, you know, just we move from thought to thought so quickly sometimes, don't we? And yet in in Russia, or rather in Ukraine, um, because of the Russian attack, there's so much that's been thrown out of whack for Ukrainians. And and one thing that was very interesting, um, just yesterday it happened, was Elon Musk. You guys know that guy? Pretty pretty famous, smart, rich dude. Um, Elon Musk took his Starlink satellite internet providing, and he actually enabled the whole nation of Ukraine to access the internet via satellite so that there's nowhere that Russia can go in and cut the cord and cut them off from the internet. It's a pretty wonderful thing if you think about it, right? And this is not just so that Ukrainians can occupy themselves while they're hiding in subways and scroll through social media, but think about the things that they would need. Some of the things that were listed were things like healthcare. I mean, how many of us do our our doctor's visits virtually now anymore? Um, Even thinking about communication with people outside and trying to find help, I mean, Having internet access is a very vital thing. And, and what's happened for the Ukrainians in this regard is, is pretty wonderful. It could really have a huge impact. We don't know exactly what just yet. But it enables people to seek information, right? And to, to connect with each other. And yet, not quite in person. It gives something of what a lot of us have, have kind of imagined. Boy, if my internet were to go out for a month, I don't know what I would do. And yet, what is provided digitally is something that cannot ultimately provide, be, cannot match with what is provided spiritually for us in seeking the true teacher. We can seek information. We can even seek to connect with other people. 
electronically, digitally, but seeking the true teacher can't happen that way. Certainly there's a lot online that can help, right? Uh, certainly things like, like what we're doing right now. I mean, we're streaming to Facebook Live, right? So that other people can watch the service and hear the word. And, and that's really good. We need to actually seek the true teacher himself in relationship. This call this morning to seek the true teacher comes, to, uh, the, comes from the place of dealing with the teaching last week and discovering what he has to say to now saying, uh, we have to deal with the teacher himself. What are we going to do with Jesus? What is our overall action towards him going to be? And I was thinking about what Jesus is calling people into from even the beginning of the Gospel of John up to chapter 7 right now. And of course, it's pretty obvious, uh, faith is a very central thing, isn't it? And what's interesting is Romans 1.17, as Paul talks about the Gospel in verse 16 as the power of God to salvation, he then says in verse 17, in it, the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what does that faith look like in response to what Christ has said, in response to the person of Christ? Certainly seeking in this passage is not so much just about seeking the teachings, but seeking the teacher himself, right? Seeking to not just understand, but to really know him. You see that in the beginning of this passage where they say, hey, is this really the Christ? Do even the leaders think that he's Christ? Uh, well, hold on. We know one thing. We know where he came from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And Jesus, in verse 28, says, you know me and you know where I come from. And this is kind of hard for us to understand the tone here. But the way I understand it from the Greek is that this is more of like a, like a question. Like there's a redundancy to it. Like, do you know me? Is that what you think you have is the right idea of who I truly am? So he's talking to a group of people who are kind of looking at Jesus and saying, I, I see what you mean. I see what you're about. I see what you're trying to do, whether I agree with it or not. They're comprehending the teachings, but they're not really seeking or knowing the teacher. I mean, this is what the, the people of Jerusalem were trying to do here, right? They were trying to figure these things out. We see that in the beginning, of course. So are the leaders. They're trying to seek him out for a different purpose, of course. So let's consider this baffled crowd. This baffled crowd who is meant to be seeking the true teacher rightly, humbly, and in a timely way. As they consider Jesus, the first thing that they see is something that is striking about him as a teacher. He says, isn't this the person that they're trying to kill? And what is he doing? He's out here speaking openly, doing the thing that people want to kill him for. What could this say about this guy who claims to be the Messiah, who claims to be God with us, who claims to be the one that we've been seeking for our whole lives? What could it mean that he's speaking openly when people are trying to kill him? I mean, if any of us, I imagine, if any of us right now got a text message that said, hey, so-and-so person or group would like to end your life, what would the first thing we would, what would the first thing be to do? We need to find somewhere to get away from that person. We need to find some kind of sanctuary, some kind of place of safety or refuge to hide ourselves from our enemies. And yet what Christ does is the exact opposite of that. He's speaking openly. And this baffles the crowd. They don't see how those two things go together. And it sets them on the right direction for a minute, doesn't it? Because you should see then if 
he's sought for death, and yet he's speaking openly. There's something unique about him that sets him apart from the rest of us. But so quickly, they turn and they say, hold on a second. We know where this man came from. He's from Nazareth. And when the Christ comes, no one's going to know where he comes from. Have you ever heard that notion in the Old Testament, that expectation that when the Messiah comes, that nobody would know where he comes from? I, I hadn't noticed it until this past week, but it comes from Malachi 3.1. And so in Malachi, uh, the prophet says that when the Lord appears, he will appear suddenly, and he will do so in a way that shocks everybody, and nobody will notice it, know where he came from or where he was going, and they apply that immediately to Jesus to say, hey, if he's from Nazareth, that's not nowhere. That's not a place we don't know. We know Nazareth. That, that fits our thinking, and therefore, this guy can't be the Messiah. Now, I know it's interesting when we come to biblical interpretation in our own lives, and when we see biblical interpretation happening in the Bible, it's kind of a funny way to look at it um, objectively, but it really highlights to us our need to put God's word in the context of God's word and start from the assumption that if something doesn't make sense in God's word, it's probably because I don't get it, not because God has been unclear. It is a very safe presupposition to come to God's word saying, God has been clear, he has spoken the truth, and I need to strive to understand that. When we don't do that, though, when we rely on what we know, we can halt our seeking of God. So our minds tell us, hey, this doesn't make any sense. And, and we might say, and I've had conversations with non-believers about this too, and it's, it's a tough thing to try to communicate. But so often the apologetical argument is refuted by a person who doesn't believe in Christ. And they say, this is why I don't believe in him. And then we have to get to a point where we say, hey, the problem isn't that you don't believe Christ because you don't get him. The problem is you don't believe Christ because you don't want him. Because you're seeking something else. And when you hit a wall where it seems like God doesn't make sense in his word, you say, well, I guess that's it. Hey, the Messiah is supposed to come suddenly. We don't know when or where or anything like that, but we know this guy, so he's not it. What a foolish thing. Where else in life does that kind of thinking work? Right? I mean, if you're sitting in a classroom and you get a homework assignment, you say, well, I don't really get this homework. And in fact, I don't see why it's important. I'm not going to do it. And then your report card comes in and you've got an F. I mean, this is, this is a situation that happened so many times when I was teaching middle school where it seemed like kids were always baffled by, I didn't do the homework, or I didn't study for the test, and then I, why, why do I have an F in your class? I mean, it's, the proof is in the pudding. It's right there. You, you failed. You didn't do it. <laughs> or you, you did it half-heartedly. Or you didn't put the time in that was necessary. You didn't actually seek to do what I set out for you to do. You sought something else instead. Because if they were so biblically minded and thinking about a passage like Malachi 3.1, they would also have to compare it to Micah 5.2, which is a very familiar Christmas passage to us. It's you, O Bethlehem, from you will arise a ruler that will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, so he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. But I find another wall there too. So even if I'm not going to take Malachi and Micah and try to put them together, I can say, well, hey, he says Bethlehem here. Everything I've heard about Jesus, the crowds might be saying right here, hasn't been about Bethlehem. We don't call him Jesus of Bethlehem. We call him Jesus of what? Nazareth, because that's where he moved. He was born in Bethlehem. 
But then he also had to move to Nazareth so that the scripture could be fulfilled that he'd be called a Nazarene as well. So God's picture is a lot bigger than ours, and when we use our own knowledge and our own understanding, we stop seeking him and we get into a really bad place. We get to a place where we've shown where our hearts truly are, where our consciences have been warped and, and misshaped. You know, it's interesting. My, my van, there's been so much work done on my van recently, and it's been so frustrating because one thing gets fixed and then there's something else broken with it, and then there's something else, and then there's something else. And, and you know, you're... You're doing this detective work on your car, and you say, maybe it's this or maybe it's that. Well, finally, I, I found out, after all these steps that we've done, now the wheel is warped as well. And, <laughs> and the wheel is warped on my, on my van, and it's not damaging the car so much right now, but along the road, literally, as, as miles get added to the van while this wheel is warped, there's other parts of the car that are going to be damaged, and, and th that damage is going to be evident in other places, but the wheel is going to continue to hide its true problem if I don't address it. So that's something on my checklist today. Maybe I'm just saying all of that to remind myself to do that. But it's interesting because our consciences get warped as well. And Paul talks about this in Romans 2.15. He says that, He's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about how even though God is revealed in nature, um, the Gentiles show in verse 15 that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. So their conscience, what God has written on their hearts of what is right and wrong, clearly defined, their conscience bears witness to them about that. It's, it's the, the wheel that's warped that's you know messing everything else up. And their conflicting thoughts do one of two things when it relies on their thoughts, when their seeking falls on their knowledge and says, okay, well, what are we going to do? Let's search the database of what we know and respond accordingly. Paul says their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, the, the accusation is what we want, right? We, we want our consciences to say, hey, before God, you have sinned and you need somebody to deal with that for you because there's nothing you can do on your own. But there's also this matter of excusing that happens as well. When the conscience is warped and it doesn't work right and it affects everything else around him, instead of the conscience, accu conscience accusing and saying, this is what you need to do, it says something else like, oh, maybe you don't need to worry about this so much. For this crowd, they've figured Jesus out. So now they can accept him or reject him on their own terms. So when they have finally said this statement, hey, we know who he is and where he's come from, Jesus in verse 28 proclaims, which is a really great word because remember, we're in the middle of a feast and there's a lot of people in Jerusalem going back and forth. There's people that are, you know, walking away from that poor rabbi who had that great lesson that nobody's going to hear because the true teacher's there. And, and they're hearing these kind of things and Jesus opens his mouth and says, do you know me? Do you know where I'm from? Have you really figured me out? You said that no one's supposed to know where I'm from, and since I'm from Nazareth, I can't possibly be the Messiah. What's so fascinating about why John tells this story is because what do we have in the beginning of John? In verse 1 of chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. What is the origin of Christ? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The fascinating thing is that, yes, he does come from Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. Yes, he lived most of his life in Nazareth. Yes, he even uh, left for Egypt for, for a short while so that more scripture could be fulfilled. But his true and most real origin is that he doesn't have one. He's eternal. 
He's from the beginning, from before anything ever started. And so when he says, do you know me? Do you really have me figured out? There's an irony there that we as the audience need to see that the, the immediate audience there that Jesus is speaking to doesn't understand. You know me, you know where I came from, but I've not come of my own accord. I'm not like these other teachers who have been waiting for this day to present something that they've done. I've been waiting for this day to present the message that God the Father has given me to present. Something strikingly different about him. So the crowds, the baffled crowd, uh, rather than seeking him rightly, uh, they're seeking him according to their own minds. They, they're thrown away humility that might say, hey, maybe we've got it wrong. Maybe we need to think about what God has said here. And then, of course, the Pharisees come in too. Yeah, we are seeking you, just like the crowd is. But we know right off the bat, we need to kill you. That's what we want. During a season of grace where the Messiah is there and he says, I will be with you a little while longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. A time where he's there to present the grace, the good news of what he's going to do to save sinners. There's a large group of people who want to end that whole season of grace. And not just passively to just say, hey, when is this going to be over? When is he going to finally shut up so we can go back to what we wanted to do? But there's even a group that says, what can we do to shut him up? What can we do to make him stop? We're going to have to kill him. It's a pretty extreme measure, but the truth is, is that in the sinful heart, it's not as far away as we think. I mean, yeah, there's clearly a crowd here who's just kind of baffled, and they're just thinking that they're not going to do anything to Jesus. But then there's these Pharisees who have been so reliant on what they know to a deeper level than the crowds and their own understanding. These Pharisees, these teachers, have gone from hearing the word of God to the point where their conscience now excuses them from it. And they're ready to oppose Christ in any way they possibly can. Jesus says to that group, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Their opportunity to seek and know was coming to a halt. Because time is not a help to anyone. Certainly not to this group that Jesus is speaking to. There was no matter of time. If, if only Jesus' ministry had extended longer, maybe they would have changed their minds. You know, a lot of times in our own lives, too, we imagine if I could just have a little bit more time with this thing, or if, I, if God would give me a little bit more time before he calls me to walk in obedience, I, I, maybe I could start getting some of these things in order, and, and then I'd be ready. Time is no one's friend. From thinking back to 2020 to now to 2022, we, we dealt with this whole COVID thing, and I know it's still real, it's still going on. It's, but, I mean, we've, we've given it the back seat, haven't we? Why? because we've reached the promised land and we got back to normal and everything's fine because the pandemic is pretty much over. No, now we're talking about things like World War III. I mean, now there's even scarier things going on. The normal that we seek, we'll never be able to seek. We'll never be able to excuse ourselves from the things going on in the world or excuse ourselves from what God has said. We have to actually hear what he has to say. We have to actually seek him out rightly and humbly and perhaps most importantly in this passage, in a timely way. Because the time is short. So I wonder this morning, are you in any way excusing yourselves in what you, because of what you've sought already, because of what you've already acquired in Christ? Is it enough? And you say, okay, if I can just kind of 
bunker down and, and keep steady where I am right now. I've reached where I'd like to be. I don't know about you, but that's a big spiritual struggle for me. I, I have goals. We should all have goals. When those goals are reached, I, I'm tempted to just kind of say, okay, cool, let's just stay here. I don't want to do that whole seeking the next goal thing. That's too hard. I don't want to move forward in that. And perhaps when it comes to Christ, we might say something like, I know that I have eternal life. I believed in him. I'm reading my Bible. I'm doing certain things here. I don't want, to ask, I don't want God to ask me for any more from him, though. I don't want to have to keep seeking and keep trying to understand him or, or to know him any better. Uh, perhaps it's just a matter of, uh, I don't want to be obedient. Or I have no affection for Christ in my heart. Maybe that matter of affection is a matter of us saying, I, I'm willing to study and to exercise my brain in worship and in seeking Christ, but not at the place of my heart, not where I'll actually humbly embrace him for who he is. And so Christ's mission to come to the earth and die for sinners shows us that the true teacher is the one who draws us, which something we've learned from the Gospel of John already, right? The Father draws people to the Son, and the Son reveals who the Father is. And at the cross, the divine timetable that Jesus is working on, where he says, hey, even though people are coming to me to arrest me, his response is not to run away. His response to say is, it's not time yet. I'm going to be with you for a little while longer. I mean, if somebody's coming to capture you and arrest you, and perhaps they have weapons or just you know, strength or whatever, you don't say, like, hold on. It's not time yet. And yet this God made flesh, who's sovereign over all things, is not on the timetable of how we're going to work around him, but he is on the timetable of his father. And the very presence of him there shows the design of the sovereign God to create opportunity for people to discover grace and for people to seek him for who he truly is, because his time had not yet come. Yet, his end goal, his desire, we see in verse 34. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. His heart's already there. You see his present tense in verse 34. I, I'm already there in my heart. Well, where, where is that? Go back again to verse 28 and 29. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And that's where he's going back. His desire on earth in his ministry is to fulfill the will of his father and to walk in obedience, to walk humbly, to do the right thing when we don't do the right thing. And in that, he invites and brings those who are seeking into the same knowing of the Father as he is, that, that intimate relationship. John 17, 3, you might know it. This is eternal life. When Jesus is praying, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The whole purpose of being sent was so that that teacher, that true teacher, would bring people back into the truth and bring them into right relationship with God. And that's what he accomplished at the cross. So that those who believe has, have no reason to look elsewhere. Uh, verse 31 is interesting in this regard. Many of the people believed in him. At this point where the pressure was really on Jesus and people were coming, trying to arrest him, and yet God's timetable was not matching up with theirs, and people are believing Faith is happening in the midst of all of that. And that's why I think, particularly as we think about Ukraine and what's going on there and knowing that the church is there, we need to be praying pretty seriously, pretty fervently that, that people would be coming to faith there as we want to see here as well. When Jesus' hour did come, he made it possible for us to seek him truly. 
And in that hour of pressure, we can find that as well as we are faced with the trials of life and the temptation for sin, all the things that are coming at us. We come to Christ who, even Proverbs 10, 11 was brought up this morning. Um, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. And that's what Christ came to give. And that's verse 37 that we're building up to, this idea of living water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This living water that Christ offers reverses kind of everything that he said to his opponents so far. Where at one place he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to go away and you can't follow me. To his disciples in Matthew 28, 20, he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When he says, you will seek me and you will not find me because you can't come where I'm going, he also says to his people, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. And to his disciples, Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? To his opponents, to those who are lost in their sins, there's no place before God. And yet, for those who are redeemed, those who have sought out the teacher, there's salvation to be found. There is a place for us because of what Jesus has done at the cross. Realizing these things about the true teacher ought to drive us to seek him more continually, not out of duty and not out of a desire to grow our own head knowledge or to say, I figured the Bible out, but just to know the person of Jesus more, to go beyond the teaching that is good and that we do need to understand, we do need to study, we do need to grow in, but to let that teaching drive us into the place of realizing the glory of the teacher. And from that, we ought to be drawn into his mission as well. And this is a fascinating thing, this last section, the baffled teachers, in verses 35 and 36. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? It's fascinating, this first question that they ask, where could he go that we couldn't follow him there? Oh my goodness, does he want to go to those dirty Gentile dogs and teach them the words of God, there's a place we could never go. Their conscience has excused them from the very mission of God. It's ironic that they say this. Of course, Jesus isn't talking about going to the Gentiles in this moment, but ultimately, in the end, that is where he will go. That's where he will send his people to proclaim the good news to the whole world. So no amount of learning can clarify Jesus' teaching apart from knowing the true teacher. And that's what these baffled teachers show us. Because they knew everything there was to know about the Bible. But they were far from God. They had sought him according to their own understanding and not with their whole hearts. So two things the teacher can teach us seeking students. If that's what you are this morning, if you are seeking Christ, um, there's two really, really helpful things, I think, that come out of this passage that we can walk away with. First of all, that divine timetable extends comfort to his people. Imagine yourself standing next to Jesus in this festival when he says, hey, you can't arrest me yet because my time has not yet come. What kind of confidence is that? It's confidence in the sovereign God who has given him a commission and that he is determined to fulfill. But it's not his determination that is primarily his reason for confidence. It's his Father in heaven, whom he knows is in control. And so we have that kind of comfort as well. You're invincible until God says otherwise. Nothing can happen to you 
apart from his sovereign will. And we should recognize, too, human responsibility has a part to play in that. I mean, again, what drove the president of Russia to say, I'm going to invade Ukraine? Did God allow that to happen? Yeah, he did. But there's also the matter of an evil intention in his heart. And so with our hearts as well, and so with the hearts of those around us that might do wrong to us or to others. But ultimately, nothing will happen apart from God's sovereign will and allowance. So we should derive comfort from God's divine timetable, just as Christ did. And from that, like Christ, speaking openly, even though they sought to kill him, we can openly do what Christ has called us to do as well, to proclaim the gospel to the nations, those Gentile dogs that they were referring to here, those those non-Jews that seem to be so far from God, when in fact, those who reject the true teacher are just as far Secondly, another encouraging thing, the divine timetable extends urgency to seeking the teacher because we are on the clock. We don't really have anything else more important to do that we can set seeking Christ off to the back burner to set it down further down on our list. I don't know about you. If you're a calendar person, I like to create a list of all the things I have to do so that I can check them off during the week. And I never put anything in there like seek Jesus or, you know, discover the teaching of the Bible. But maybe maybe we should do some of those kinds of things to let Jesus intercept our practical calendars, our practical checklists. Just so that we can, in our own weakness, embrace the truth of what we really need. Because this divine timetable means that urgency is laid on us to do what God has called us to do. We are on the clock. Now, there's three, three ways I would grab from this passage as well that we can seek the true teacher as he draws us into his mission. First of all, as a matter of perception, believers want to see Christ as accurately and as truly as possible. If you're in Christ, you have a desire built into you that says, we need to know him more. We want to know him rightly, not so that we can get all the right answers on a Bible quiz, but so that we can understand the one that, love, that we love and that loves us. So our perception matters. Secondly, the presence is another priority for those seeking Christ. Believers want to do whatever is necessary to embrace the presence of Christ more, to dwell in the sanctuary that they have in him. And then lastly, it's a matter of pleasure. Believers find pleasure in the relationship they have with Christ and seek to please him as well. This is not to say for you to to get, oh man, you know, I'm not really... I don't really care about my perception of Christ or I don't care about his presence or I don't care about pleasing him or walking in the joy that I have in him. Uh, But just to say that if you are in Christ, those things are built into you whether you feel like it or not. So take a moment this week sometime and refocus your spiritual goggles in a sense. Check your perception of who Christ is and see if that does not bring some fulfillment into your heart. Consider his presence and come into it through prayer. And consider all that he's done for you and all that he is for you right now and see if that doesn't lighten the load of the world knowing that he is not far from you. And then lastly, as it's so easy for us to seek pleasure and fulfillment and entertainment and joy and other things outside of Christ, take a moment to set those things aside and seek Christ for your own joy. Seek Christ for his joy. Say In prayer, take a moment and just say, Lord, what can I do to please you? What can I do to grow in Christ and to make you known. What, what can I do that will bring you joy? I don't 
think that the father would ever say, no, there's nothing you could possibly do to make me happy. Of course, that was true of us before we knew Christ. Now that we are in Christ, we've been given works to walk in that I think do please the Savior. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, thank you this morning. Even though we do not seek you rightly at times, and sometimes we don't seek you at all, you are worthy of being sought. And when you so move on our hearts to draw us to seek Christ, we find that kind of fulfillment. We find all of our needs met. We find the purpose of our creation. So Lord, this morning I ask that you would help us. That you would indeed draw us to Christ. Help us to make much of him in all that we do say and think. In Jesus' name, amen.